try it again. <laughs> I can't play piano as well. So we'll call music, it two, Music six, is what you're looking for. I'm Casey. Bill's here. Hey, Bill Schultes. Hey, how's it going? It's going good. Hey, Carly Vigna. Hey, Casey. That was beautiful. Thank you. Great job. Thank you very much. And Caleb Pickering's here. Hey, Caleb. Hey, how's it going? And Ben Charles is here. Hey, Casey. Brian Nosny's here. Hey, man. That's That was almost like that was your second run of that. So good job. <laughs> First one was better. And Ksenia Kanyanovich is here. Hey, Ksenia. Hey, last and least. Hey, what's up? How are you? It's good to see you all. I'm doing fine. Thanks for being here. Thanks for doing kind of an impromptu bonus episode. I feel like we got so far ahead that we, we kind of said, oh, we should we should probably take a break. But I thought, oh, let's just pile on and do like an extra, re extra release or something. So I don't know. It's Christmas Eve or it's the day before Christmas Eve, something like that. So we'll, we'll release it then. We thought we might do kind of a, a year-end like wrap-up kind of thing. And I just went back and looked through what guests we had and just kind of categorized them like we have before. So this is the ninth round table we've done this year. We've had 19 guests I put into soloist categories. We had, of course, there's a lot of overlap in what everyone does, but just for convenience sake, I just kind of pigeonholed everybody. We had 10 guests that we thought their main focus was chamber music. We had three composers. We had 11 orchestral percussionists. And we had four people from the, the music industry. So yeah, that's kind of the year-end wrap-up, I guess I would say. I think we did, we did pretty good. It feels like, uh, I don't know, it feels like we're getting a, a, a decent spread. Does anyone have any favorites from the year? Or I don't know, any, any highlights from the podcast at least before we talk about the year at large is that ben uh, i'll speak for everyone and just say steve schick every single every, every single time we hear from steve schick is wonderful and uh, it was cool this time he actually performed on the podcast for us and we got to hear that and also much more recently uh, alan adi performed a piece on the podcast and that was cool too hey and i just performed and casey performed an avant-garde rendition of a christmas classic yeah 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 no it's good i think people should perform more i think it'd be good it'd be good to have that does anyone else have a favorite from the year or a highlight i mean yeah loved steve but i i did love i think we brought in so many folks that are so busy normally and now we got them so it was awesome to get all these very fancy i i also liked all the youngsters all the new up and coming fancy folks that we got in from europe and so on i thought that was cool all the Kai Strobel's and Simone's and Christoph's. I thought those were cool episodes. Hey, don't sure, forget sure. we had Evelyn Glenning this year. It feels like another world because that was in March, but <laughs> that was 2020. I thought that too. I, I almost wanted to say like, gosh, let's let's do a guess who was in 2020 because it feels like yeah, Evelyn Glenning was so long ago. Ivana Billish was 2020. Right. Um, Jennifer Whoa. Lawrence, 2020, um, Anna Dumford, 2020. There's just so, yes, yeah, so, so many. We got a lot done. Sorry, Brian, what were you saying? Nothing. I was just being dumb. <laughs> <laughs> nice bed, Brian. From What's my, up? Can you from tell us? Course, from, my lovely, from my lovely Airbnb in upstate Vermont. Sure. Sure, Brian. For sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Not a motel. Not at all. Nothing. Nope. Nope. Hey, um, you know, speaking of Brian and highlights from the year, one of the things that I was really happy with that we did here was Brian's new percussion ensemble piece called Trick. 
And speaking of just like playing things on the show and getting a little more performance things in, I was just going to play a quick little excerpt from the piece before Brian's got to go. I think he's got to go before the hour's up. So, yeah, here, this is a, a little bit of uh, my group, JMU Percussion Ensemble, playing a piece by uh, Brian Nosny called Trick. spoil the ending for everybody brian thanks for the piece we really enjoyed it my pleasure thank you guys you guys played it incredibly i i actually it was funny just watching that video as i it boggles my mind that you guys played it as well as you did with social distancing and whatever because it's really hard ensemble and so to be for all the players to be that spread out i was like oh that's got to be a nightmare so you guys killed it thank you must have must have been the conductor absolutely absolutely yeah, yeah, no doubt. it it um it, it kind of made me want to write a big percussion ensemble, and I know yours isn't a huge one; it's eight players, and it it has um has the effect that a lot of large ensembles do. You know, a lot of keyboards, no percussion in it. It's it's cool to me how you retain interest throughout without relying on a lot of effects. Or I mean, it's such an easy go to like. You didn't bow a thousand things. You didn't look for like all. So actually, you didn't bow anything. You know, I mean, I don't know that there's so yeah. many tropes in in larger percussion ensemble pieces that I just kind of expect to see now. And it, it was cool that yours is no, it's just vibes, crotales, bells, and uh, and marimbas, and and that's it. Thanks, man. I mean, uh, yeah, I nothing against those pieces out there that do those things, but I've yeah always just kind of made it a point to if i'm going to write a piece like that like a keyboard ensemble i try and get a hold of as many as i can and go okay what has everyone else done what do i need to avoid so right. i try to i try to avoid those tropes if possible so that i'm at least contributing something new to the repertoire yeah yeah no it just seems like the simplicity of it i i don't know i really appreciated it like I, and not that it's a simple piece but just that it was uh like hey, let's just rely on good writing. You know? Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. There, there was no okay, and let's prepare this instrument. And do, I mean, and there, there were certain 
textures I tried to think like I originally like the vibes were supposed to play with acrylic mallets at first like those for opening stabs were supposed to be that and then I was like oh it's that uh, someone's I'm gonna upset someone if I do that let's not do that and stuff but I asked for like the hardest mallet you can that's not acrylic and what so it's just thinking about those type of things but I'm glad I'm glad you liked it and I, I it's one that I'm I'm more proud of especially because I I wrote it pretty quickly and um, it's not like my usual, there's no real programmatic essence to it or anything. It's just kind of notes, notes for notes sake to it, to a degree. So what, what about as far as the title? Is there at least some programmatic info from the title? Uh, no, it, it just, you know, I, you know, we've talked about how, how we write. And for me, it's, I, it's setting up parameters and just figuring out, okay, what am I going to do with inside these parameters? And so for me, actually like the, it, I knew I, I don't think I'd written an octet at that point. So, all right, I'm going to write it for eight players. And it was Jim Campbell commissioned it for the PASIC ensemble there for the all-star ensemble. So I just made sure with him, like, Hey, I'm going to write for eight players. Is that cool? Yep. Uh, I think I asked him what he wanted and he wanted like a keyboard ensemble. I was, all right, cool. That, that works well. I hadn't really written anything like that. And then it turned into, um, from there, it turned into me saying like, um, you know what? I haven't written anything in like Hungarian minor. I think I literally just picked a random scale. Like, no joke and i just said like all right let's mess with this a little bit like oh there, yeah i can do some stuff with this i've never done that before like so let's just do that and then what ended up coming out of it was it just kind of sounded mischievous and whatever and 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 so and i don't ever entitle anything until the end and so i just kind of went trick ah, that's sure it, it works and again there was no real programmatic nature to it or any anything about it um so it was just kind of like yep that that fits and i like single word titles i'm like cool let's go with it it works uh -huh. Uh -huh. cool 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 no we, we liked it a lot i really enjoyed rehearsing it i feel like i i don't know um a, a couple students had some really i don't know some really uh <laughs> they learned this piece really fast i was amazed i was really really happy students i expect a few of them no offense fellas but a few of them who i expected to to take a little longer just learned it really really fast so yeah i don't know what what do you does anyone have an opinion on like you know these these larger percussion ensembles that i i think a lot of programs really need are there certain things that they they do they do well certain things that some some others maybe don't do as well I can tell I'm kind of on my own here from the chat. <laughs> I think Ben wanted to say something. Oh, he did. Ben, great. Yeah, I love well, yeah, I just had a little, little question slash comment about the piece. Well, one thing Casey said is you know, just using the instruments as instruments, like not reinventing the wheel and bowing everything. Like that's very David Maslanka thing. And you see that like Crown of Thorns is a great example where it's just great music written for just regular keyboard instruments and nothing else. Um, but Brian, when I was watching Casey's recording of the piece, the beginning has this cool groove that I thought was in the Cretales, but the, the angle was like behind the Cretale player's back, so I couldn't see what he was doing. And I was trying to figure it out because I heard a lot more noise than I saw motion, and then I realized there's the Glockenspiel player. Uh, but is, is it is that little groove thing that with like the muting, is that only the Glockenspiel or is that the two instruments interacting? I couldn't it's tell. It's both of them interacting. Okay, cool. That's what I figured, yeah. Hockety type of pattern. Yeah, that was, that was a, a cool thing I had not heard done before. I mean, that just, I, that, that just, Gamelon. I literally yeah. just stole it from yeah, Gamelon ideas. Now that you say yeah. Gamelon, I guess I have heard it before. <laughs> then then there was Western Gamelon. instruments. Yeah. Those were marimbas. They were actually Cretales, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you got me. <laughs> I love about, you know, speaking of like how you layered things in this piece, I, I really like how the assigned functions in it, they're all like 
the piece doesn't fall apart if something's not there, but you definitely notice a hole. And and one thing I don't like about these some of these large percussion ensembles is you can kind of hide. You know, the, the, the players can kind of hide because things are just kind of stacked on top of each other, like a you know like a humongous string section. It's like yeah, if mm -hmm. something drops out, you're you're gonna be safe. <laughs> you know. So on one hand, it's 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 nice for beginning players because hey, if you can hide good you can hide but that's that's not what I, I usually am looking for uh in a piece caleb i think yeah you're talking about um the importance of these i was actually when we brought up uh this idea of large ensembles earlier uh i kind of i found uh someone parker's fsu dissertation and he has a really good interview with richard gibson talking about his time at uh working with the, you know, developing the OU percussion ensemble and then the OU percussion orchestra, which, you know, it went to that. Then Gibson went to, he's at TCU now, I think is department head or something like that. But, you know, now Brian West and TCU have that percussion ensemble or percussion orchestra, but they were kind of trying to differentiate what is large percussion ensemble and what is percussion orchestra. I just thought it was really interesting. And I, I think I really agree with everything Gibson says. Uh, in Gibson's words, talking about what is percussion orchestra and how is it different, he says, um, curricularly and conceptually, uh, we had moved to a point, speaking to OU, where we had a definition of groups, such as there was one particular group, which was in fact our top group, was really focused almost exclusively in playing these large forced, primarily keyboard works. And he's talking about these things we now call kind of percussion orchestra. Uh, then we had enough other groups playing other kinds of rep that it seemed appropriate to start drawing a distinction. We no longer had the percussion orchestra and splitting up and playing quartets and quintets. We actually had defined percussion orchestra and a defined percussion ensemble. He goes on to talk about um, the importance of percussion orchestra versus ensemble. He says with percussion orchestra, um, you can only play ensembles, uh, speaking to orchestral music, band music, quartets, quintets, so long and you didn't really become challenged to play what I'd call the symphonic leading roles that so many of our wind and string colleagues do in their instrumental areas, uh, playing in symphony orchestras and bands. At some point or another, they are making the primary music. The opportunity to play that kind of music I felt would extend us as musicians and as technicians. There was a musical effort and technical effort that could be resolved in playing the right kind of music in the right kind of form. I think that's kind of like why I think I write more in the my larger pieces are more percussion orchestra than percussion ensemble because I really like the idea of um, yeah everyone is kind of the opposite of what Casey said where okay with Brian's piece you know everything kind of fits together and you can't really hide but I really like the other way where there's so many layers and so much density where everyone does have to play their part you know correctly and accurately because there's lots of interlocking rhythms. But I feel like we get to be in charge of the symphonic role more frequently than we do in like chamber music. Yeah, I, th I think you're right, Caleb. I think the problem that it, my personal opinion is that some of the earlier works within that idea of the percussion orchestra took that idea too much to heart and they wouldn't in their minds, I think some of those composers assigned roles. Okay, well, the, you know, the glockenspiel, the crotales, the xylophone, those are my upper woodwinds. And then the vibraphones, those are kind of my middle road. And then the marimbas, those are my, my kind of bass area and whatever and stuff like that. And then because of that, they didn't utilize those instruments 
they didn't utilize them for the actual color and texture that they bring. They utilized them for, oh, well, that's the high instrument. Oh, that's the medium instrument. That's the low instrument. So uh, I think that there's some really wonderful pieces within the realm of percussion orchestra. And I've written one and I really enjoyed it. And I want to write another at some point. But I think that there are also some where, where they, they kind of almost deny the, they deny the actual personality of the instrument in, they sacrifice that for just well that's the that's the really low instrument so that's gonna be my bass instrument that's just my opinion at least so is percussion orchestra a specific set of instruments does he say that somewhere is uh gibson's breakdown was it was really unspecific uh unspecified i think he said he started using the term only in the year 2000 or 2001 which is not that long ago in the grand scheme of things um, but his kind of rough estimate was three quarters keyboards, one quarter percussion, kind of, kind of like a wind band setup, you know, personnel wise, it's about three quarters winds, one quarter percussion, or maybe, maybe a little less percussion. So there's still some flexibility and some room. Yeah. Yeah. There's kind of, I mean, if you've seen like all the stuff TCU does, they've kind of started to standardize, um, you know, there's the four marimbas, two of them are probably five octaves two vibes, silo, crotale, and there's these kind of trends. So yeah, it's a cool time. I, I wrote a two, my only big piece, two movement work on one of their, their CDs. And uh, it's just so, it's like, it was a challenge for me because it's so many instruments. And I, after I, my ears get tired after hearing like marimbas on top of marimbas, they, they kind of start to sound like toys after a while. Uh, somehow Brian avoids that in his, but um, yeah, like I, I think it turned out nice. It's good, and of course they did a fantastic job. But it, the writing was yeah, really, really different. I mean, some of the marimba parts were just like so sparse and so so thin. And um, yeah, I don't know, but yeah, Brian's piece it's made me want to take another stab at it and write like a, a kind of a, a denser one, a busier one. I, see, and I think that that's one of the advantages to having all those is you can start to create like okay, I have four marimbas. Well, I can create. A you can create a texture with three or four marimbas that you just you can't create with one, right? Like you could have them all playing the same line, but you're experimenting with mallets or shaping on on only one of the lines. Like there's so much that you can do that I think that that's what really is exciting about those. And yeah, TCU, I think they've really broken the mold in a lot of ways because there are those there's the standardized instrumentation, if you will, that they that they run with. But you look at a piece like. Um, like Nathan Daughtry's Firefly is like one of the finest examples of that idiom, if you will. But while they're all playing those things, they're also playing a bunch of other, like each player I think is playing another thing as well. They've all got an auxiliary instrument or, um, oh, John Sothis wrote one and I can't, I, is it White Feather? I think it's called. John Sothis wrote, though it's the same type of deal that while there is the, tr the traditional type of orchestra, percussion orchestra that they have, he's augmented it in such ways that it kind of brings new life to what we once heard in the percussion orchestra. I think so. Do you know, Nathan wrote that firefly one based off the TV series, firefly. I could only hope I wish, oh. <laughs> you, you know, right away. I'm not, I know it's not the crit, but God, I wish he had <laughs> it's shiny. Yeah, Bill. <laughs> uh, for, for those of you who would be writing for these larger percussion orchestras, would you consider doing like a pared down version of those pieces as well for programs that either don't have the, the resources um, or the, the or the people? Ooh, that's a tough one. 
and and I I say that only because I well, in my my opinion is you could, but it depends on how the piece is written and if you can kind of, for lack of better terms, trim the fat and the piece still holds water. Um, I had this, like I had this issue with another piece I wrote called Convex, where one of the one of the very main parts is for double second pans, and it's really hard. Like the pan part's really hard. You need a pretty monster player to play it, and two not everyone's got, you know, pan program at all. And I debated for a long time going like, well, what if I just make that like a vibraphone part? Like say, if you want, you can substitute it for a vibe if you use this type of mallet on it. But then I was like, well, but there's already two other vibe parts. And there were so many things that were written into the piece that took advantage of that kind of synthesis of sound or whatever, that I just felt that it was being disingenuous to the piece. So I, I never bothered to do that. I would you, that's not would the, you be okay with like um, putting like the pan part on like say a mallet station with a good sample? I mean, that'd be fine. Yeah, totally. I would have no problems with, with that, but I thought that if I suggest vibraphone, it's just never going to, it's never going to be what, what it's, what it's supposed to be. Not to say that, oh, my vision has to be the end all be all, but it's like if it's going to, if it's taking away so much from what that vision initially was, it's kind of like, why are you bothering to play the piece? So I, I hear you, I hear exactly what you're saying, Bill. And I think that depending on how the piece is written, like I don't think you could do that with Trick, for example, because every part that's there that's layered is making such a, a specific texture that if you were to say, like, okay, well, let's, cut two of the marimbas and one of the vibes and one of the, you know, high metallophones, you just, you literally wouldn't have the piece anymore. It would sound so different that it wouldn't, it wouldn't function the same way. But I think that there's someone out there, I'm sure that could write a percussion orchestra piece or a large ensemble piece with that in mind and make that totally work where you could trim it down. Okay. It's supposed to be for 12, but you can trim it down to seven and it still works. One thing on, like on a similar vein to this is also just the equipment demands. A lot of these pieces call for four or five octave marimbas. And I like Crown of Thorns, I think, don't quote me on this, you can have the marimba one part and the marimba four part played on the same five octave instrument, uh, which is handy, or at least with minimal changes. Um, and so, yeah, and even, uh, what's that piece? Unfollow Centric Lecture, uh, it's a marimba quartet with some accessories, requires four marimbas, and recently someone made a two marimba version of it. Uh, and I did that at the last school I taught at, and it, it sounds the same to me. I'm sure there's, they've adjusted the register in places, but it's like, if you can do it on two, why, why would you do it on four? Um, it's obviously kind of nicer to have your own space, but yeah, I think that's a consideration is if you can just somehow clump instruments together, it helps. And Ben, I, I, I think that what's just happened is that over time, I mean, on follow centric lecture, that's Nigel Westlake, that's pretty much his opus one. And I think when he was writing it, I don't think that there was even a consideration for, oh, I should make this as marketable as possible. I think it was just like, well, I'm just going to write whatever I want. And I think now we've started to see this more inclusive idea of, hey, can I make this, can I make this work in such a way to where, yeah, only the upper, so that's not just only the upper echelon 5% of programs that have, you know, seven five octave marimbas and you know you know two sets of timpani and blah, blah like you can do that so i think that that's been a more current trend but i think it's a great trend i think it needs to happen more often was there oh sorry ben um was there a, a christopher rouse connection somewhere i thought we mentioned that somewhere it, there there 
the only reason that happened originally, I, I can say like originally the piece was just going to be dedicated to Jim Campbell because he commissioned it. And then um, sadly that was, as I was writing it, that was when Christopher Rouse passed away and uh, Christopher Rouse was who uh, I did my dissertation on. Um, he's a hugely influential composer to so many, but especially to me. And um, it just kind of, finding out that he had passed because it was, it was rather unexpected. Uh, I just started to think about, you know, my interviews with him and talking with him. And one of the things that he said when I asked him, um, I had asked him about Kuka and Ogun and why he thought that those two pieces in particular were still around, what, like 50 years after their writing? Like, why are these pieces still around and still played so often? And one of the things he said was he felt that they weren't these hugely like long pieces, they didn't overstay their welcome was the term that he had. And so trick is probably the shortest piece I've ever wrote for an ensemble. And I kind of felt the same way. I was like, Oh, this didn't, it doesn't, it doesn't overstay its welcome. It says what it needs to say and it gets out of the way. And so I just felt that that was like a nice tribute to him that it did have some sort of connection. And then, yeah, just given that he had just passed, I felt I wanted to pay some sort of homage to him in that, in that, um, in that setting where he's so influential. Cool, man. Yeah. Really nice piece. Ben, what do you got? Well, I had a, a question for Caleb. So Casey has this piece called white knuckle stroll and it's like one of, Casey's we're not talking about this. And, uh, I, I actually like when I <laughs> in person a while back, I actually had it in mind. I was like, someone should write a tumor in a version of it. Like Keiko Abu does with a lot of her pieces. And one day I was going to actually get around to that and surprise Casey with it, but I didn't. And now I told him, so it wouldn't be a surprise. So I'm not going to, uh, but Caleb made the piece even harder. Uh, so Caleb, <laughs> tell us, tell us about what you did with Casey's work. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why not? Um, I think is the answer for that one, but uh, no, I just haven't. I mean, I think like a lot of us, you know, playing opportunities have been kind of slim for the past, Gosh, I mean, I guess going on 10 months now, um, I didn't have a lot of projects or any real gigs lined up. So I just, yeah, wanted a challenge. Um, I was kind of in a bit of a, I've been in a little bit of a compositional slash playing rut a little bit. I was like, ah, I can't find any rep. I really am stoked about learning right now. And I, I don't really feel, I just finished two big composition projects and uh, around, uh, around October, I was just kind of like, oh, I just, uh, I don't really feel like writing, like I'm not really feeling it. But uh, then arranging came around and I was thinking, hey, Casey's piece would be cool. Uh, and I just started with the opening lick, the little B, um, that really fast one down. I was just like, you know, that would lie really well with four mallets. And then, you know, a couple hours went by and I just like, I sent Casey a little uh, snippet of it. And he was just like, ooh. And I was just like, okay, well, this probably isn't going to be like the big seller, um, like a groundbreaking thing, but this sure would be a fun project. Uh, but yeah, basically I just went through, um, I've almost got it all notated out now, uh, but I just took it bar by bar and just uh, some octaves here, some displacements here, some triple laterals here. Um, yeah, I, I didn't really get true permission. So I'm waiting on the lawsuit. It's just coming. Uh, that's okay. I'm ready waiting to, to figure it. out how to do that. So how many people in the JMU percussion studio have played it at this point? Everybody. That's how you get in. That's that's interesting. It, it was, a, it was on everybody's jury. What, yeah. it, it is interesting though. Like, like Bill's asking Brian about reducing pieces and 
and Ben's asking Caleb about expanding a piece from, you know, two mallets to four and from, you know, one level of virtuosity to another. And, um, yeah, I don't know, it, it kind of makes me think, like, yeah, do pieces size up more easily or do they scale down more easily? And sometimes I think they scale down more easily only because we're the faculty here did Mahler's Song of the Earth. We did the Schoenberg arrangement, like chamber uh, ensemble arrangement, and it still sounds huge. You know, I mean, it still sounds so so good you know and not that i'm like intimately familiar with the original mahler but it is just so i mean it's just a study in exactly what we're talking about and it's severely reduced you know but it's um yeah really yeah really something i feel like oh i feel like i have this issue when i hear marimba i think it comes up with percussion ensemble occasionally mainly keyboard ensembles is that like um I feel like a lot of pieces are written for marimba with kind of this idea of piano when it really has like the output to me more of like classical guitar. So like there'll be these kind of romantic-esque marimba solos. And unless you have a really big sound when you play already, people go up and play these pieces and it just sounds like I just want to turn the gain up like two more notches. It's just not quite loud or full enough. (laughs) Yeah. but yeah, so I think for me, I really like writing the large ensemble stuff because I don't know, I like it loud. Like I like things to be really loud. And when I write solo works, I kind of like to use, I think, denser notes, like the white knuckle stroll one, like adding notes was fun because it just, it beefs up the sound and it just feels like a denser, uh, denser isn't, thing. Isn't loud weird now though? Like, I mean, cause I think back, you know, we just talked about Mahler. It's like, you know, humongous, huge, um, Wagner, humongous, huge, new spaces, new instruments, loud, 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 loud. But like, once you've been to a tool concert, you nothing acoustic is ever that loud ever. You know what I mean? Like, 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 like we can't. You know, like <laughs> you, you can't get to that. That race to who can be the loudest is like over. You know, maybe now not in the, now. Not in the so much loud, but. Maybe loud's not the right term, but not loud volume, but just like full, yeah, dense and amount of sound. Like like when people play, like Virginia Tech has this ginormous concert hall, and then you see solo marimba in it, and it's just like, and it's just, it can't fill up any of the room. And I feel like that happens so often. It's like, oh, here comes this epic piece, and it's written well, and then they play it in the hall, and it's just like, well, that was kind of unsatisfying because it just it didn't fill up the suit like it marimba needs to be in like a small intimate space yeah caleb and i think i think you're it, it's you're the term that i'm thinking is right is yeah it's density because like i can't stand like thin sounds that are supposed to be you know really humongous and all of a sudden you hear it, and it sounds like tinker toys that just drives me up a wall and i think that younger composers fall into that trap because with sample libraries and whatever, they're able to make, you know, Sibelius or Dorico or whatever, like sound huge and epic and whatever. And then they get it live and they're like, man, why does this not sound the way I expected it to and whatever. So I think that's a, that's a pitfall right there. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Casey, any thoughts on that? (laughs) (laughs) I've it's never such heard a, this before from Casey. Seems mm-hmm. like it's such a variable that's so hard to control. Like, 
like, yeah, if the hall's not on your side, of course it's not going to work. But, you know, I don't know. Like, you think, like, I think so much of what people write today. You know what's a really good example? Drum set stuff. Like, people write stuff for, you know, drum set and tape. Dude, that, like, never works in a recital hall. Ever. It's too loud. Or, like, Caleb, um, Jonathan, our student Jonathan Waller, played a killer version of Slice by Larnell Lewis, which isn't even full drum set. It's, like, a hi-hat and two snare drums. And like, like, and our recital hall is like beautiful. You know, it's a small recital hall. It's acoustically costed like a tillion dollars and had like 18 doctoral acousticians, you know, build it and was like amazing and everything. But like that piece, we had to do so much just to like make it work in that space. And it was because it was so, so ringy and, and so loud. And I, I think a lot of times people are writing for for your ears, like, like for your, your headphones and for your home stereo and for your, your phone, you know? So I think it's really, I think it's really tricky. I was just going to say, and for the record, I think that white knuckle stroll would upscale really well with like, a you know, the Burrit band, like backing group. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 Nice. yeah thanks. Or, or maybe like full string section playing the, <laughs> the whole solo cut and paste. I, that's my that's my thing that I'm going to steal is because I can't play it, but I can at least write ensemble parts that I might be able to play behind it. Ksenia, is everything okay? I just failed Bill's expectations of what this was going to look like. Okay. No, you got you got a thumbs up. Oh, I gave you a thumbs up. I, that I was good. It, was, it looks <laughs> lovely. It looks thank lovely. you. It sounds like a consolation prize, but that's normal around Cangelosi, I guess. Anyway, <clears throat> sorry to interrupt. Yeah, Ksenia and I are the only people in here who apparently like America because I, I, I did a Christmas song and I'm drinking Christmas nog and she has a Christmas tree and everyone else hates freedom. And What's more there. American than a, a, a bed Jesus. breakfast in Vermont? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Brian. A bed <laughs> I'm in a suburb of Atlanta, but, you know, it still works. <laughs> hey, uh, Bill, we, we talked a little about or we mentioned that you did a, a cool PASIC clinic for everyone. Of course, this was virtual because the Percussive Arts Society International Convention was done online this year. And as Carly noted, I think, gosh, in the, the most recently released episode, the archives are still online. I think you can watch them till the end of the year, we think. Mm -hmm. Is that right? So yep. uh, probably just a few days after this episode comes out, you can still watch uh, wh whatever you missed at PASIC which I'm definitely going to catch up on over the break. But one of the things I caught was Bill's Fundamentals Clinic. And, uh, yeah, Bill, I was just wondering if you would tell us a little about, I don't know, you know, you just you just performed and presented on a stage that is a really important one to a lot of people. It's a huge milestone that a lot of percussionists are trying to get on their resumes, and it's, it's a big, you know, kind of, I don't know if it's a stepping stone, but it's definitely a really great resume point. How did How did you know, getting a gig at PASIC work for you? Sure. So uh, the uh, education committee um, chaired by Oliver Molina uh, invited me to give a timpani fundamentals clinic. And <clears throat> excuse me. So the topic I decided to do was timpani roles because um, I had done a little bit of research looking at the last few years of the timpani fundamentals and it looked like that particular thing hadn't been um, talked about yet. And so uh, when we were doing it, PASIC gave us, PAS gave us the option of either doing a live stream or do a pre-recorded. I think that was pretty, that went across the board for most of the artists that were invited. Um, and so I decided to pre-record just because number one, I would have access to better equipment to record. And number two, 
um, there could always be some things that go on that go haywire with the live stream. And so at least you can kind of control things a little bit easier if you pre-record it and just um, have it kind of premiere when your time slot was and, and, and be in the chat to answer any questions um, that came up. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun to do. Um, I, I workshopped it a little bit with a, uh, another webinar thing that I did through University of Memphis and tried to trim the fat to get it down to, I got it down to about 40 minutes. They wanted about a 30 minute clinic. Um, so I got it to about 40 and that seemed to work all right. Um, but yeah, I, I just wanna give a shout out to um, Caleb and Jose who are our amazing video and audio people here at U of M who did a great job miking everything and making it look, look super professional and stuff. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. It sounded really good. I feel like even when timpani is recorded well, it sometimes isn't recorded well. And yours was, yeah, sounded really nice. So you said they invited you. Did you have to apply or was it just a straight invitation? Uh, in this particular case, it was a straight invitation. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if, um, because I, it seems like with the way that PASIC was structured that some people wanted to wait until, if they were invited, they wanted to wait until 2021 to present. Um, versus um, some people who wanted to present in 2020. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it was it was just just asked because um, I had done some clinics down at uh, Northwestern State where Oliver teaches a couple other places too. Well, yeah, one I note, I, I oh, I'm sorry, Carly. I can jump in on this real quick as I'm a part of the education committee too, and I can tell you a, a lot of the content for PASIC this year that was online was curated because like you said, Bill, a lot of the people accepted said, hey, I'll, no, I'll do it live. Let's do it next year. Um, so people were nominated and, and kind of the, the content, the presenters were curated who would one, give a great clinic that's going to be awesome to see online, like interactive and informative and also tech savvy and all that, all that too. So the process was different this year, for sure, for, for a lot of the slots. But I, it was a really enjoyable. I, I don't know how many of, of, of you or people listening to this like had a chance to attend virtual pacing, but it was a really, really cool thing. Um, so for like the two days that you were there, all of the, they had the days and they had quote unquote rooms for each kind of um, schedule of clinics. I think there was like four different spaces that were online and available and so you had your choice say at like 11 a.m of seeing four different things and you could kind of go in between those different streams which is super cool but i think the thing like that casey you mentioned at the top that's really really neat about this is that you didn't have to necessarily go to david garibaldi's clinic live you could like now go back and and watch it now and it's like that's so cool like because you know that i guess it's one of the cool things about PASIC is that there's so much going on but you also miss some things that you would want to go to and, you know, there's no way to go back and, and watch those things, especially if you're like, man, I didn't, I couldn't take notes that fast. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that. And I think it's, it's a super valuable resource to have. The way, the way you described how they set up the clinics, I, I didn't expect to get such a nostalgia hit. <laughs> like, like when I looked at my schedule and they had it all laid out, just like the live version, the in-person version. And like you said, you could go watch this at this time or that at that time. Like it really, it, you know, I, I thought, oh, that's cute. It looks the same. But then I like really felt it after a while. Like, oh yeah, hey, this does kind of feel like PASIC. And so I don't know, it's just a... Uh, really cool they they managed to fit that in there you know yeah brian oh I, I just wonder if this kind of broke the mold a little bit and if what we're going to see in future PASICs, because yeah but we've we've all been there at PASIC where you'll see your your four o'clock time slot 
And you know, it's like, oh crap, there's three things that I want to go to all of them at that time. And you're debating, oh, I will do it to 20 minutes there, 20 minutes. There. Like, how, how do I manage this? Or do I just say, well, I'm going to miss two and whatever. I wonder if, if there's going to start to be a, a basic registration level, or if they'll build that into where, okay, everything's also going to be taped and you're going to have a month of, you can go to an archive and you can watch, you you can watch all the four o'clock hour now. I, I, I wouldn't be shocked given our, our world right now with zoom learning and all that, if that's going to, if that's in the cards, I'm totally well, guessing. I know nothing it, about it. it. It seems like they, they, they have taped most things that the clinics that I've gone to in the yeah. past. Yeah, and so yeah. the infrastructure is there. I mean, it would just be uploading those files, right? And I think that would be a great thing to have PAS kind of roll into your price. Like not only do you get to go to PASIC, but afterwards you also have access to this archive until the end of the year, which would be super cool. And I wonder if one of the reasons they haven't is just because they haven't figured out how they're going to market it or if it's like, oh, well, you know, Steve Smith doesn't want to have his clinic you know, up there for the masses to see for all, you know, for all time. So it might, that might be the answer is like, Hey, until December, you can watch whatever you want. And then it goes bye-bye forever or something. Yeah. It could definitely be a rights thing. I mean, especially with some of the orchestra clinics I've gone to in the past where um, they'll use like recordings of either their orchestra or other orchestras. I'm, I'm sure there's some, you know, legal things to, to deal with there. Well, I think about what even happens at our own performance hall. I mean, if like when Pat Metheny comes and plays and it's uh, like, of course, it's not recorded. But uh, if <laughs> the other things they record, I mean, yeah, the layers of copyright question and rights to it's it's pretty, pretty deep. You know, if uh, Chad Smith goes and plays a Red Hot Chili Peppers tune at PASIC, um yeah, like like how to how to get that available for paying subscribers to PAS is probably really complicated. Yeah, Ben. I, I, yeah, I was just say there could be some sort of you know opt out thing or opt in or some sort of option for it. It doesn't necessarily have to be required, but like an educational timpani clinic, I'm sure in in regular PASIC, Bill would be happy to have that seen by more educators till the end of the year. Yeah, right. Like why? Yeah, why couldn't some be available and and some not? Yeah, of course you're right. Right. Yeah, I, I feel like the takeaway, you know, like how you got there, Bill, like you've done clinics like this at Midwest. I mean, you, you've done timpani clinics for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you were very, very experienced at this. And, and the fact that, like Carly said, they didn't do PASIC with regular application process this year. I mean, I know if if people told me, hey, who do you know who gives a really good fundamentals timpani clinic? They're like, well, I've seen Bill Schaltis give eight of them. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to look there. And so anyway, yeah. No, it was definitely something where I had bullet, my bullet points down. You know, it's like maybe in the clinics I've given in the past with, with timpani, I haven't gone into the weeds on, on roles per se, but it's like, I do definitely have like this set of like bullet points that I can just kind of like, okay, I'm going to go boom, boom, boom down the line. Yeah. Very cool. Well, congrats, buddy. It was good. Thanks, man. Um, let's see. You know, an another thing I thought we maybe would talk about today, I think at Bill's suggestion, is it looks like we're going into at least another spring semester with the same um, learning modalities, as is how you're supposed to say it. And I don't know. Does anybody have any thoughts or ideas of things they're going to change or do differently? I feel like it worked pretty well for me over here. Anybody? Yeah, Bill. Yeah, I, I think 
we're to your point, we're going to keep doing the same thing. So like at, at U of M, we were able to do hybrid lessons. And so um, for each student, we were able to meet one time in person for every three times we met online. And as much as uh, as much of a problem as like March and April, where we were able to kind of like say, hey, go get like a good USB microphone or I'll set up the percussion studio with a good computer so that we can make sure that we're doing um, quality streaming and with quality sound. Um, I think that the, my biggest takeaways are how much my students missed interacting with each other and interacting with the rest of the student population. And I, so one thing that we did, and, you know, obviously every state's and university is going to be different. Um, but for one studio class, we just went outside, congregated under, under a, a tree, socially distanced with masks and we played bingo and just had like a fun time just playing bingo. I had some door prizes from other clinics and stuff that we gave. So that was hey, a good, I think, like way for the kids to kind of get together. Did, did any of your international students not know how to play bingo? They, we were all good, man. Bingo. Yeah. Bingo. I, I, I never thought it was possible, but yeah, Ksenia didn't know how to play bingo on this show. Didn't know how to play bingo? She's, she's from the... I grew up under a rock, okay? okay? It wasn't like Malcolm Gladwell invented the game, all right? <laughs> Thanks. Yes, I, I had to, no, I, I had to just ask Casey to explain it to me. Because when Casey explains things, they're usually wrong. Just like that whole chess thing was fully wrong and Carly was right, but that's fine, yeah. Oh, uh, you mean like pawn captures queen or queen takes pawn? They're both correct. Capture is definitely correct, but takes also. Not according common. to Michael Young. I'm sorry, and I trust Michael more than I trust you. And I don't know Michael, but are you going to be one of these people that <laughs> someone says a YouTube comment against you, and you just like never forget it? <laughs> it wasn't against me. It was against you. <laughs> oh, was it? Yes. And even he didn't even pick up on it. I guess yet. I didn't pick That's up fine. on it. And the Casey Senya rivalry continues. <laughs> Rating skyrocket. <laughs> How's our ratings? They're so good. Yeah, they just, <laughs> went, they just went up a, uh, three points. Carly, you've got a 62% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yep. 62%, pretty good. Pretty good, I'll take it. For a percussion podcast, I mean. Well, I was going to say, on a, on a serious note, I think probably we're all at least partially online, if not completely. I'm still completely online as far as I know for everything through the spring. Um, what have you all done that you, what, what have you all done differently in online lessons or online classes than you would have in person? And what, I'm, I'd love to hear what works well. Snare works for, well. For me, yeah, for me, the biggest difference is not being able to play with the student. It's much more difficult. Um, so you just kind of have to do that sort of, you know, I play, you play. And I, that's, the, I think, the, one of the biggest negatives for me to kind of figure out. Yeah. I actually, we did uh, lessons like via, via Zoom and I can't stand it. So what I'm probably going to do, uh, actually we will be face-to-face -face is my understanding, which I'm excited about. But one other option that I would want to do is at the least alternate or the lessons are going to be, you have to video the day before whatever you're supposed to present send that to me, I watch it. And then our actual lesson is more us discussing, like discussing the video and stuff like that, because just too many times it's, oh, there's a hiccup right there or the, 
the compression kicks in and I have no idea, like dynamic contrast goes out the window and blah, 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 blah. So it's so much easier to be like, okay, this is a performance that they think is worthy of, of a rep of a good representation of what they do. And I can comment on that as opposed to, Oh, the, oh, the internet connect. Oh, so, uh, sorry, you have to play that phrase again. It's like, that's just a nightmare. I can't deal with that. Yeah. And I had a lot of students like that, that we asked them to just submit their links ahead of time. And it, yeah, it worked worked really well. And I did that in the spring where they just did that. And then I just provided written comments. And the problem that I ran into was I just, I ended up not feeling connected enough to them. So now if, if I were to have to do this again, um, we would still meet every single week and we would just at least discuss the things. And then you can at least do like some sort of demonstration for them if you need, but just the, the solely, I watch a video, I provide you with comments that, that think that, doesn't work at the end of the day. Well, right. even one thing I was doing a lot is having students like we watch the videos that they submitted together in the lesson. And I, I know for some of them, I, I think it's their first time watching the video and then they're seeing and hearing things. And like, that's a different perspective too. Um, plus I'm seeing when they, when they do a video that might be like a little bit more prepared than the lesson would have been if it were just in person, you know, I mean, all of us, all of us, when we're recording something like it's a little bit more intense with preparation. Well, and um, I, I really also like if they send you a video ahead of time, and even if you don't have a chance to watch it before their lesson, you watch it with them, like you said, which usually is all I have time to do, but you split your screen, hit share screen, their videos in this half, the scores in that half, mm -hmm. and then you can pause, you can point, it's like you're, it's like you're staring at the score together. And, and I think in most instances, that was the soonest they had listen back to the recording with the score in front of them. So, I mean, I know like we all do that, we all plan on doing that, but sometimes you don't get around to it till a few weeks after you've made that recording or whatever, but this like guarantees they turn right around and do that. So I, I don't know, I wonder if, if that's, um, yeah, an, an easy way to take advantage of the, the circumstances. And of course you gotta get scores from them. And I just made Google Drive folders with everyone, like a name for every person, which I'm sure a lot of, uh, all of our, our teaching uh, listeners do, but I thought that was really, really, really convenient just because I could teach at home, I could teach in my office, and then um, like Bill said, I think we do, you know, one lesson online, but then meet face-to-face -face the next week, and if the weather's nice, there's benches right outside here. I like doing pad outside. Yeah, I, so one other thing that we did this semester that I'm going to definitely start incorporating going on even once we're beyond the pandemic is we weren't allowed to really do a live concert at all. And we had to keep the numbers in our percussion ensemble, um, including the conductor under six. And so instead of doing the live concert, we made like videos of each one of the pieces and had uh, I had like some students helping me out with the editing, um, both the audio and video editing with everything. and totally took the, their input in terms of like, hey, do you want to like film this in this place in Memphis that has a cool mural? Hey, do you want to film this on top of a, of a uh, parking garage, go for a different kind of vibe? Um, so I, I really thought projects like that were super beneficial. It was like a lot more work on the outside to just edit all that stuff rather than just a one-off concert. But yeah, for sure, that's going to be something I take um, after this for sure. We definitely saw that benefit over here. I feel like actually, I think Ben complimented it to us a few, a few episodes ago. Said it seems like yeah, our students are recording really uh, better. Yeah, and Ksenia, you too. I feel like your students have been making these like killer recordings recently. Um, 
Yeah, no, we did a, a, a few things and uh, it's, it's been nice. And for a lot of them, it was the first recording session. So it's uh, mind blowing how quickly an hour and a half can pass by when you're trying to record like two minutes of music. Um, that's tough. But uh, my, I guess, uh, best uh, piece of advice for everyone is play Among Us with your students. First of all, you figure out who's a good liar, who's a bad liar. Secondly, you let them take uh, all their stress out on you. So they kill you in cold blood all the time. I was murdered. Always. I was always the first person to be murdered, but also. Wait, wait, wait. I, what, are you, what are you talking about? I'm confused. Can you start over? I was going to say, explain it for the, the older people in the room. Have you not played Among Us? Hey, it's the for thing yourself. Oh, Among Us. Well, oh, yeah, <laughs> totally. Oh, sorry, Kanjelosi, my English, man, my English so bad. My bingo, I'm sorry. You play my game. bingo, it's my brain. What? You play game. Fuck, you play the bingo game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was Dracula. Among Us is great. Yeah, we, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So play that. I think that's a wonderful way to stay at home and to actually learn about uh, people's, uh, you know, lying techniques. Does your you does your department chair know you do this instead of teach lessons? Is that cool? <laughs> it's not instead of lessons. You they do now. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no, but seriously, I think there's so many great ways, and I think the kids are uh, grateful if you want to just hang out with them in a different way, and it's it's fun and it's stress relieving. So, yeah, I think that's that's the way to go. Cool. That sounds that's that's hey, good advice. Hey, Cassinia, this is a. Uh... Y'all probably have talked about this before, but what the hell's up with the Corpus Christi epic undergrad demonstration video? Uh, the coolest uh, undergrad video of all your students playing like Octobones and uh, other stuff. That was like the sweetest thing ever. Oh, thank you. Nobody's complimented me on the podcast. Oh, you, oh, y'all are bad. <laughs> well, I just when I just made that compliment. Sorry, no, I don't hear when oh, this no. person in that corner speaks. I rarely hear anything that just counts. I pay you compliment. I just made that compliment. You're making these you're, you're making good videos. Um, it means nothing coming from you. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Caleb, your check is in the mail. Um, thanks for asking, by the way. Okay, now I can speak about this. Uh, no, but in, in all uh, seriousness, I mean, uh, we don't have, we've, we had not had a serious or any internet presence. Um, my predecessor did, did some things and recorded some of the students, but it's only now that the pandemic has made the department and the performing arts hall actually push through with these things. And so, I mean, we have a really nice hall. It's really beautiful. And we decided, okay, let's make a little, um, let, let's make a little trailer just because nobody could come in. Nobody could, you know, take a lesson. Nobody can know who we are and what we do this year. And I thought it'd be great if, okay, I, I speak a little, you can skip me, but see who the kids are, see how they play, see what they cherish about their experience um, and how they interpret their, their whole time there. And I think that is really valuable to any folks who might want to join the studio. So it was more like a, I mean, it's a partly recruitment effort, but it's also like, hey, here is where you can look us up and this is who we are. Reach out if you want to do anything. Hey, guess who my first student was to play Octobones at GMU? Caleb Pickering. That's right. Oh. Comrade. Comrade Pickering. How was that experience? <laughs> Peckering. 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 He heard it at the concert, I think. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if we ever did it in like a lesson stuff. 
Oh. Oh. Ooh. Okay. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> ooh. You guys just play Among Us instead of having lessons? I don't know. I guess. Ask Caleb. <laughs> <Apparently>. <laughs> Uh, this is going downhill real quick. Yeah. <laughs> I said I said uh, one thing, and now I'm on the top of the Cangelosi hit list. Yeah. <laughs> hey, on that note, I've got a bail, so I you can edit this part out. But so See happy you, holidays, you guys. I'm sorry I have to bail, but thanks, buddy. Enjoy happy Airbnb. holidays. Be safe, and yeah, hopefully I'll see you guys again soon. You know, speaking of speaking of being safe, has has anybody had to um, explain COVID stuff to students? Like, have you ever had to? like fuss at anybody for hey put your mask on or um I, I feel like you know you often see students talking politics i mean i feel like p students of this generation are just so so much more politically savvy and enlightened than i was i mean by by far i was not paying nearly as much attention to politics as the, our, the this group of students is but i was has anybody had to chat about yeah that? i've had to I've had to remind a couple of my students that I'll wear the mask just over their mouth versus over their nose and their mouth. Um, okay. That seemed to be kind of a thing. And then our uh, our school wouldn't allow um, the students to share marimbas every day. So I had to like literally for the Rosewood Mermaids had to like literally assign certain students to have that. And we had UBC lamps that would hopefully help disinfect the instruments. Um, so that was also a tough thing to say, especially to like my new freshmen, like, Hey, I'm sorry, you can't play on the Rosewood Marimba right now because we've got to go through all this health protocols. This is what our university is doing, and this is what they're they're recommending. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, no, I think ours were really good. They, um, um, we had a pair of roommates play a, a piece on the same marimba, and um, <laughs> the our performing arts center just kind of said like, "Yeah, that's fine," because they live together and. Um, and, and, and just, I think they can treat it just like family, you know, like family are allowed to interact differently than people who are not family. So if you live together, it's different, but they said, oh, also maybe just don't like go on a podcast and tell everyone about it. You know, don't like tell the whole world about it. So. Good job. Good job. Nailed that one. <laughs> yeah, totally. No, I, I, I was going to lead into just like, you know, I, I hope we don't have to fight anybody, friends, colleagues, family, students on like whether or not to take the vaccine. You know, I was talking to my brother who's a, who's a, you know, works in medicine and he was explaining the, how good the vaccine seems and how um, effective it seems like it will be just as, as long as people take it. And that the, the side effects, like a lot of laymen like myself think like, well, it's a new vaccine. And if they, if they did rush it, which they, they really didn't, this was like the projected time expectation for it. But even if you think, oh, they kind of did, and of course they rushed it because there's so much money to be made and, you know, any doubts you might have, it's uh, no, like, you know, the physicians who are getting the vaccine now, if there were to be any scary side effect or anything, they show up in like a week. You know, the side effects historically in vaccinations show up really quickly. They don't show up a year later or anything. So, yeah, I mean, there's just like tons and tons of reason to encourage everyone to just take it. Yeah, I think we have to get to like 70 to 80%, right, for herd immunity. Is that I right? think it's technically lower. Um, okay. Like, I thought we got it far less than that for like the measles and the, the mumps. Mumps? No, mumps. They're vaccinated for the mumps. I don't know. Measles. Polio? No. What's that? Polio? Polio. In or America, do we, take... don't, we don't have that. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> no, not anymore. <laughs> Yeah. I quit. 
Yeah. Well, they, well, they say, you know, with measles specifically, like along with a lot of homeopathy and a lot of, um, you know, new interesting ideas. Like I, I remember one story, this, uh, you know, homeopathic healer was selling measles popsicles to kids. And the whole idea was like, yeah, you get the measles early and then it's over. And, and, and like, yeah, there's actually been like little areas in the U.S. where measles was a problem again and they had to knock it out again so yeah the um the <laughs> the usually skepticism is a good thing in this case the skepticism against vaccinations is like really really foolish is, and, is it allowed to talk about that uh, at the university or is it considered like political indoctrination or infringement on people's rights yada yada i don't know i think it's allowed yeah, I mean, I feel like there's so many stamps of approval, like official channels of stamps of, of approval, like all the way up to the highest tiers of the, the government, you know, the, uh, um, you know, Dr. Fauci is saying to take it and the FDC is taking to, is saying to take it. And yeah, yeah, I, I think it's safe. Well, I can see most schools re requiring it for their students. I would think so. come back. I sure hope so. Yeah, you think about yeah. the, the vaccinations you have to check uh, check off. Yeah, I sure hope that one is um, yeah going to be included. Yeah. Yeah. Good point, Bill. Yeah, it's a it's a valid question, and um, honestly, it's a just reflection of where we're at. That like, are you following medical advice, and is that a political statement to follow or not to follow? Um, but. I mean, it certainly wasn't a political statement a few years ago, but yeah, that's the, the sad thing now is it's like, ugh, gosh, it unfortunately has, has become that, you know? So yeah, it's a, a valid question, Ksenia. We have, I think our school of music has been really, really good. Like Casey said a lot, like I feel like our, our squad and this little bubble of school of music has been great. But uh, my girlfriend works at our library here and the general populace is pretty, pretty bad about following the rules. Um, I know there's a lot of issues, not on just our campus, but everywhere of this idea of like fraternities and sororities was like, oh, well, we already had it. So we're, we had it, we're good, we'll stick. So we'll keep our, our partying going on and our, our gatherings going on. And then of course it gets worse and worse and, and so on from there. But I feel like most schools of music are pretty, eh, pretty, pretty liberal free-thinking people yeah yeah i think so in yeah. general i almost miss i don't know if you remember caleb like elijah would be so pro bernie and he'd be like yelling at nathan and tyler about how awesome bernie is i miss that oh yeah yeah that's good you just come in and it's just like well i think maybe donald trump no if you and let me tell you six <laughs> let me tell you 32 reasons why you're wrong and why you're a morally bad person and he'll just <laughs> He'll just destroy people. It was pretty amazing. It yeah. was pretty funny. Yeah, it was amazing. And of course, as the teacher, I'm just like, oh, uh-huh. Okay, cool. I'm so glad you guys are talking about this. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, look how, look how uninfluential I'm, I'm being on, you know, how unpartisan I'm being. Cool. Hey, well, let's, let's call it there. Thanks, everybody. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. All that good stuff. And uh, happy Hanukkah and all that excellent stuff. So uh, thanks for doing this kind of impromptu thing, and uh, we'll catch you probably in the new year on the next one. Yep. Be safe, everyone. Yep. Cool. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.